Support for this podcast comes from CLR Clear. Fight back against annoying household messes with CLR Clear. CLR Clear is tough on dirt and grime all around your home, and we're not just talking about calcium, lime, and rust. They have an entire lineup of cleaning products for your kitchen, bathroom, garage, and more. Visit clrbrands.com to learn more. CLR Clear, fight the clean fight. Eileen Fisher designs simple clothes to make your life easier. Timeless pieces in high-quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and more positive impact in the world. Visit EileenFisher.com and use offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. A podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. When I'm not hesitating, I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. <laughs> I am Friedman. I'm always Ann Friedman. Let's be <laughs> real. <laughs> I'm pretty excited to hear today's show, actually. I say I'm excited to hear it because it's an interview that you did. Yeah. So on our agenda this week, we are talking about the subject of women's pain. In particular, how often it is misrepresented and misunderstood by doctors and the medical establishment. And also the catch-22 of trying to be the perfect patient, even as the system is failing you. nothing heavy well you know we like we've talked about this on the show before and i think it's a it's a topic that is really top of mind for a lot of women because we know that um like we know firsthand but i think that a lot of people who are listening also know firsthand that women's pain is frequently dismissed or underestimated by the medical establishment and that has huge ramifications for how we seek care and how we receive care Yeah. And I think one reason why we want to make it an ongoing conversation on this podcast is because it is an ongoing facet of so many women's lives, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. not just something that happens when you are, I mean, interacting with the medical system. I feel like the ramifications of being unrecognized by um, studies and research or being kind of dismissed by doctors have this knock-on effect Um, in terms of how a lot of women think about their health and wellness overall, like not just while they're literally sitting in a doctor's office. Right. And, and the thing is that it's also a topic that comes up all of the time. Um, If you've watched homecoming, which if you haven't watched homecoming, what are you doing with your lives? Mm. But if you have, if you are, you know, if you're Beyonce American and you've seen it, I think a Bay American, a uh, a B American, (laughs) (laughs) I, Like, that was not a thing that I was expected to deal with. But in the documentary, she talks about um, she talks about the the childbirth that she experienced and how traumatic it was. And I remember, you know, Serena Williams talking about the care that she received when she had her baby and the lack thereof. um, Oh, right. Or the lack thereof. And the thing that is really terrifying to me when I hear these women who are, um, you know, who are very prominent, very rich women who can afford the best care in the world is uh, is that I am reminded that for black women, this is a reality. Like mm-hmm. no matter what income you are, no matter what class you are, no matter, 
you know, like no, no matter who you are, if you are a black woman, um, the medical establishment is not doing its best to to deal with you. And so, you know, it's like if you think about these very prominent women, I really shudder to think about the rest of us who are civilians. And some of the stats on this are also really terrifying, like all these studies that show that black Americans are systematically undertreated for pain that are relative to white Americans, mm-hmm. um, you know, or thinking about studies that um that lay out the fact that black patients that black patients are significantly less likely than white patients to receive any kind of analgesic for extreme fractures in the emergency room um, despite having similar self reports of pain these are all things that just you know it's this the systematic racism is jumping out and it is terrifying me yeah and i think like that layer of this too of like oh actually the medical system like any other system values and devalues people in these structural ways is like Mm -hmm. yeah like we can talk about um women as a group but we have to also talk about black american women in particular when we talk about some of these statistics well yeah you the entire science of gynecology is based on slaveholders basically experimenting on black enslaved women and it's awful And if you want to read actually a good book about this, I highly recommend Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology by Deidre Cooper Owens. It's a very thorough and depressing and eye-opening book. And then, you know, there are things that are more recently not taking a historical perspective and just considering the fact that so many drug trials exclude women of all races, like many drugs manifest differently in people of different genders people of different races like we essentially don't have info and like young predominantly white men are setting the medical baseline for all of us Ooh, i mean like it's very it's one thing to sort of say like let's look at the racist origins of um a lot of the systems that are in place and that is that is totally valid but also like let's look at the present as well (laughs) Right. And also, you know, this is an issue that a lot of that is top of mind for a lot of CYG listeners. We get so much mail about this and, uh, you know, and a lot of us are enraged. But I, you know, like, as you said a little bit earlier, it's really important to have an ongoing conversation about it. Right. So I had a conversation with Maya Dusenberry, who's a journalist who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. Um, And her book is primarily about cisgender women, we should note, um, and uh, doesn't get into every single issue we've touched on here because, my God, how could you get into every single way that the medical system is gendered and racist and sexist? But... um, But we had a really interesting conversation. Maya, thank you so much for being on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Um, I so before we kind of get into the meat of your book and oh, my God, it is meaty. There is so much here. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I, I would love for you to talk about some of the like parameters that you started out with, because, um, you know, how, how much of the book is about what is commonly called Western medicine? I'm like air quoting, but that's a thing. And how much of it is about mm-hmm. cisgender women? Like maybe we could kind of start with some like definitions of how you approach this question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely focused on Western medicine and even focused on the U.S. really. Um, although I think I sort of broadened the scope when <laughs> when there were kind of studies from other countries that seemed useful. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it's, a, it's pretty focused on the U.S. and um, it's focused on, I think, cisgender women to some extent just because, uh, you know, some of the problems I'm talking about are sort of related to the, the lack of knowledge about um, female assigned bodies. So, you know, anybody, regardless of their gender, who has a female assigned body, I think has been impacted by this sort of knowledge gap. Um, on the other hand, the other big thing I talk about is the uh, trust gap that sort of affects the way that women's reports of their symptoms are perceived and, and often dismissed by healthcare providers, which I think affects all women, all sort of femmes, really. Um, uh, so, you know, in that, in that case, I think affects even more people, um, trans women as well. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to ask, cause sometimes when we get in the realm of the like medical and like, what is the medical establishment calling a woman? Like, I feel like that is a thorny, right. like it is a thorny issue because you're dealing with like historical data that erased lots of different types of women and different types of bodies, like, which I know is the point of your book as well, but I'm sure that's something that you had to grapple with. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. And also just because it's so much of it is sort of inevitably sort of talking in generalizations, you know, like, you know, women have higher rates of autoimmune diseases in general, but like, obviously, there are men who <laughs> also have, you know, so I, it is a sort of, I struggle to, to be accurate, but also sort of inevitably sort of had to speak in the sort of generalizations that form the basis of this sort of clinical research, which is, you know, talking about average differences between groups of men and women based on research that is done mostly on like cisgender people, mm -hmm. you know, so. Let's talk about autoimmune diseases because that, I mean, there are many, many eye-popping statistics in this book, but one of them is that women are three quarters of the population diagnosed with autoimmune diseases. And I know you have an autoimmune disease. And so maybe you could talk about that um, and how that was your way into this. Yeah. So I, um, as you know, I've been a feminist blogger for a long time and written a lot about reproductive health stuff. But it wasn't really until about five years ago when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis that I sort of started learning a lot about autoimmune diseases, which, yes, are very disproportionately impacting women and are also just like super, super common, you know, affect 50 million people in, in the U.S. Um, and so that was sort of my sort of entry into this topic where I started wondering, you know, why does this epidemic seem like really off the public's radar for one thing? And then even though I actually had a pretty easy time getting diagnosed and was never felt dismissed and was diagnosed very quickly and um, because of that was able to get treatment quickly and have been in remission for a while, but started hearing these stories and statistics about how long on average autoimmune patients go without getting a diagnosis, which is like four years, four doctors. And wow, and that's the average? Of, Sorry. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, in in one survey, okay, I okay. mean, I don't know how, how, yeah, if that was a representative thing, but... Sorry, um, I cut you off there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And so, th so this is this is one survey that yes, found four years and four doctors, and also found that I almost half of patients sort of felt like they were sort of labeled chronic complainers or hypochondriacs during that time. Um, so that was sort of the thing that got me starting to hear these other stories from from women with autoimmune disorders and also with a range of other conditions. Um, feeling like they were not being taken seriously by healthcare providers. Right. And I mean, and also, I mean, can we definitively say, like, objectively, they weren't be ta being taken seriously? Like, if they eventually got to a diagnosis after four years of being told they were complainers, it's like, it's not just right. a feeling, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, they, they definitely weren't. And, you know, it's, it's, one of those things where you can you can sort of blame that on the fact that doctors just don't get a lot of training in autoimmune disorders, and so a lot of primary care doctors just aren't. You know, the surveys show that they feel like they're not sort of adequately trained to recognize these diseases. But then the question becomes: Well, if these are so common in women why aren't we training the medical system to recognize them quickly and efficiently? Right, which which kind of goes to your um, your two questions or the two things that you explore in the first part of the book, which you've labeled the knowledge gap and the trust gap. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what each of those gaps are. Yeah, so the trust, the well, the knowledge gap start with... Um, just sort of refers to this this deficit of knowledge about women's bodies, their symptoms, um, conditions like autoimmune diseases that disproportionately affect them. And this problem was really sort of put on the radar in the early 90s, which I, you know, I'm too young to really remember that. But uh, <laughs> at that time, women's health advocates and allies in Congress, you know, sort of put this issue on the radar through congressional hearings that were focused on the fact that at that time, the National Institutes of Health had a policy saying, you know, we should include women in our clinical research, um, but didn't seem to be doing basically anything to enforce that. Also, at the time, the FDA was actually explicitly excluding all women of childbearing age from participating in early drug trials. Um, and, you know, the public sort of found out through these hearings that like a lot of really sort of important large studies had been done on just tens of thousands of men and zero women. Um, Wait, so they were, they were purposefully was, excluded from those studies? They were purposefully excluded. And it was, it was in part, I think, sort of just, uh, I mean, theoretically for their own good, like there was a sort of protectionist uh, spirit at that time that was sort of recognizing that there, you know, there's some real risks to being a part of clinical research. And, and so it was sort of like, we're going to leave women out for their own good, but also because we're like concerned about potential harm to their hypothetical fetuses. Oh um, this is like why women couldn't ski jump in the Olympics for years. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, go on. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And then, I mean, you know, so you could say, oh, well, that, that's sort of nice, I guess. But like, also, that doesn't actually help women as a whole get like safe treatments if you're just like, not 
including them in the research and then like approving drugs that haven't been <laughs> tested in them and then just marketing those drugs to them. So Right. It turns out that like protecting women for their own good always fucking backfires. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And also it's not like they were also sort of underrepresented in observational studies that were not, you know, treatment studies at all. So like, for example, a study that looked at like normal human aging which was not testing drugs. It was just like learning more about the aging process. And for the first 20 years, they didn't enroll women just because there wasn't a bathroom for women on the, at the research site. Stop. So, oh, my God. Bathroom politics ruin <laughs> everything. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh. And so, and, and so the, the excuse for that kind of stuff was sort of just like, well, you know, women, cis women with their hormones, that will just like really complicate the results. We get cleaner data to really just focus on men, which, you know, is ridiculous because if, if it actually like affects your results, then like that's all the more reason you need to be <laughs> including women so you understand what, what role hormone levels are playing here. Right, cleaner data is like, oh my God, I can't even, okay. This is like, I had this moment so many times reading your book where I was just like, I can't even handle what you're telling me right now. It's so, <laughs> it's so counterintuitive. Okay, so that's the knowledge gap, as you say. Yeah, and, and I think one thing I sort of, at the start of my research, I was like, okay, right. So like early nineties, like that is pretty recent to be like sort of suddenly realizing like, oh shit, we like sort of have left women out of <laughs> biomedical research. But like, also I was like, okay, maybe that's like long enough now to have like fixed that problem. Cause it, it seemed to be recognized, you know, we like got a federal law passed at that point saying that like NIH funded research at least needed to include women and do an analysis of, of differences. But, you know, the other big problem is that just things change so slowly. And so a lot of knowledge that has sort of emerged over the last few decades just like really hasn't been incorporated into medical education. Um, so I think we're still to some extent, like, there's just such a lag time that we're still sort of feeling the effects of that, that um, exclusion that was happening decades ago in the sort of care that we receive today, which I think that people aren't aware of that. You know, I think, I think that there's sort of a, I certainly had a impression that like, you know, medicine is on the scientific cutting edge. <laughs> uh, so, and that, that was very much, uh, I had a real rea reality check on that, that like, mm, no, like actually like these big, institutions are actually very slow to change and very conservative and just continue going the way that they're going unless there's like a real sort of concerted effort to be like, okay, we need to update the curricula here, but like there's no sort of magic wand you can wave and be like, oh, okay, now this is all like integrated and medical students across the country are learning what they should. Ugh.
Every generation has its challenges. Some would say that's the reason for its progress. It might start with a small act of kindness or a big idea that changes everything. It can come from the tiniest voice or the voice of a generation. Or it could come from me. I mean, not to. I am one of six change-making women featured in Eileen Fisher's Good Goes On campaign this spring. The campaign highlights women empowering women, the importance of sustainability, and the power of good design. Eileen started in 1984 with the idea that simple clothes can make life easier. And after spending a day on set wearing a super comfortable ultra chic jumpsuit, I think she's really on to something. As a company, Eileen Fisher believes doing well by doing good, and that's reflected in the way their clothes are made. Timeless styles and quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and a more positive impact on the world. It was a real honor to be featured in this campaign and meet the other women making a difference in their community. I've been a longtime Eileen Fisher fan, so this was a dream come true for me. You can visit EileenFisher.com and use the offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off of your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com. Offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. Doctors are making decisions about like kind of in a high-minded way right like what to do about certain Mm -hmm. diseases like how does that like filter down then to like what actually happens when real women get in contact with real doctors (laughs) in person and like how does that manifest in a real way of like for some for a person who's sick yeah I mean well so then maybe that's a good segue to the to the second issue the the trust gap as I started hearing stories of women who were going to the doctor and feeling like their symptoms weren't being taken seriously and were sort of either like minimized or often normalized and sometimes sort of just disbelieved entirely. Um, <laughs> I think at first I was sort of like, okay, you know, this is just like yet another space where women's voices aren't being treated with the same authority as men's. And like, in some ways that was not surprising to me as I did dive into the history more really sort of came to appreciate that there are these like even more sort of specific reasons in medicine that women's reports of their symptoms are are so often seem to be dismissed as like all in your head. Um, The history of hysteria and how that has been evolved um, in more recent decades. Right um, now we call it anxiety air. I mean that anxiety is real but like the number of women in this book who are have potentially fatal problems that are called anxiety is is shocking. Right, yeah, anxiety or depression or, st- I mean, stress, I think, is the, the biggest sort of, like, catch-all one because that can mean, like, anything, really. And, like, we all have stress, so, like, it really has become this sort of entrenched problem because basically there's just this tendency in medicine to sort of assume that, like, if you can't explain a symptom by attributing it to like a physical disease that you can just blame it on the patient's unconscious mind. And like this sort of default to thinking like, okay, if it's not medically explained, then it's psychologically explained. And I think that's just become so entrenched. We don't even like sort of even question that even as patients sometimes. And the real problem of course, is that like, if you are a group of people who have been underrepresented in research and have had your health conditions neglected, 
by the scientific research community, like inevitably then women have more symptoms that are quote unquote medically unexplained that then by default get sort of dismissed and it creates this sort of vicious cycle where it's like, okay, as long as we can sort of just like blame any symptoms in women that we can't explain on their like age old hysterical tendencies, then we're just like not, we're going to continue not doing the scientific research that actually needs to get done to like explain them. <laughs> so that is a dynamic that I think has, can you can really see throughout the medical system where it's like, you know, maybe these symptoms are side effects of a drug that was studied mostly in men and are go unre- unrecognized, or maybe they're symptoms of an autoimmune disease that like the medical system is just not set up to diagnose quickly, but like whatever they are, like as long as women continue having these symptoms that are unexplained, the more doctors sort of get this impression that they are prone to these symptoms that are all in their heads. And it sort of continually creates the stereotype that then impacts, I think, all women. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, and just like listening to you lay it out like that, it makes so much sense why so many, I mean, I know so many, no one loves so many women personally who have been essentially gaslit by the medical establishment, like going in again and again to say, I'm still Mm. in pain, I'm still fatigued, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be, like things that are deeply impacting their ability to live their lives every day and um, and are getting responses like, are you sure it's not psychological? You know, like, and hearing that Mm -hmm. there is a systemic historical reason for this Mm -hmm. rather than like these women aren't making their case well enough. Um, Because the thing is, you know, and you talk about this as well, maybe we can you can um, explain a bit more about like what your reporting led led you to find here. But like in terms of this just shifts the whole burden onto women as patients to prove their worthiness for care. And so there's a whole aspect of your book as well about women, for lack of a better word, like trying to be like good patients to get the, get mm-hmm. the care they need. Yeah, that's been such a hard, I've gotten so many questions that are like, you know, what's your advice on how to, like, as an individual woman, advocate for yourself and, like, avoid these problems? And it's hard because I I don't think they can be avoided. You know, women are sort of put in this catch-22 where, especially with pain, which I know that you guys have talked about on the podcast before, but, you know, if you're trying to, like, express your pain and, and need to communicate that to a healthcare provider you know, you sort of have to like show it in some way. And yet the more sort of emotional you are about it, the more likely you are to kind of fall into that sort of stereotype of just the hysterical woman. And so a lot of of women do talk about feeling sort of this pressure to be like anti-hysterical to the point of being like so stoic about their pain that they're actually like under-reporting it which then is not, you know, that's that's not a good way to, to demonstrate the severity of your pain either. And I, yeah, I think there are just like so many traps like that where it's like walking this fine line that is really, really very difficult for women especially to walk. And yeah, the, the sort of self-advocacy that is required to sort of overcome some of these systemic problems is just outrageous. I mean, it, you know, the, the women in the book, many of them went to literally dozens of doctors before they were properly diagnosed, which is just something that like so many women, that's just not a possibility. 
you have to have so much privilege and like financial and logistical resources to do that. So I'm very wary of like putting the burden more on women because I think transferring the burden of these systemic problems onto individual women, it means that only the like most privileged women actually get the care they need. Right. Yeah. And and you, you talk about that in the book as well. And even among women who are privileged enough to theoretically be able to access care, the fact that I think it's the stat is something like only a quarter of them or sorry, a quarter of them are too busy to actually go to the doctor or like even when they are sick, do not avail themselves of the option of like Mm -hmm. even trying to enter this system. Yeah, just purely time constraints are such a barrier for all of us. I mean, the I remember like sitting with my best friend and going to doctors and, you know, spending like three hours in the waiting room seeing yet another specialist and and thinking like, who has time for this? Like so few people actually like have a schedule that's flexible enough to like do this. Like how does anybody ever get the right diagnosis when that's what it takes? Right. You know, we love, we love talking about friendship. And I do think that a big part of this, uh, I mean, and this is also personal experience with my my best friend of like two decades, more than two decades, has fibromyalgia, has chronic fatigue, mm. has definitely a lot of things that show up in your chapter on contested illnesses. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that like there is a, there is a corrective effect that like a personal support system and friendship can have of not only physically going to the doctor with someone. I mean, I live far from my friend, but being a person who is continually affirming that your, what you are feeling is real and like even mm-hmm. if the establishment does not have a name for it or a treatment plan for it you deserve to not feel this way I mean the internet has obviously changed so many things but that's like such a huge one I think that provides this powerful space for women to be like okay well our experiences are similar so they're real to us <laughs> um, it doesn't really matter you know what what the medical system tries to to tell us is true because we sort of have that that community that that we can fall back on. Right. Let's talk about your choice. I mean, you you say up front that you are not this book is not about preventative routine care or like reproductive health care. And one thing I was thinking about as I was reading this is how um, how angry I am <laughs> that being in a position of defending things like the access to contraception and abortion has made the definition of women's health and what is a women's health issue. And I know that even that is sort of a dated concept at this point, but has made that synonymous mm-hmm. with reproductive health issues. And it, like, especially right. in, in a political context. And a thing that really struck me reading your book is like how important it is that we not lose sight of the fact that like women's health means more than just its most politicized aspects, right? Like this is stuff that should be more politicized, right. you know, as you know, other aspects of women's health need to be depoliticized. And this is like, hello, like we should be making a political issue of all of this. Yeah. I wonder if that came yeah. up for you as you were reporting all of this. Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, I think when I started the research, I, I planned to cover reproductive health stuff, um, but ultimately decided that the book would be sort of more focused by leaving it out part of that choice was sort of realizing that like my own sort of focus on reproductive health issues before I got sick was very much sort of as a healthy person like most of my interactions with the medical system were for 
just routine, you know, birth control <laughs> and an abortion, mm-hmm. you know, like things that, you know, are, are just like managing our reproductive lives, not actually like a problem. You right. Know? Like, it's not like a disease. <laughs> Once I did get sick, realizing like, oh, right, like, so I really haven't even given much thought at all to how sexism has sort of affected the care that women receive when they're actually sick, which seems like a big oversight. A lot of sort of women's health activism and feminist energies go towards reproductive health because, as you say, there's like always something to fight and we're always on the defensive and it's so politicized and and just because it affects so many people, certainly like that's, you know, I'm not saying that's not important and certainly is. Um, but yeah, I do think it has totally sort of overshadowed these kind of big picture problems that go way beyond reproductive health and 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 does sort of like echo that the the sexist sort of focus within medicine to to reduce women's health to reproductive health and you know people have talked about this as like the bikini medicine mentality where it's like we've sort of like only acknowledged that like cis women differ from men through you know focusing on their conditions that affect their breasts or reproductive system instead of seeing that's true, but also women disproportionately are impacted by chronic pain and autoimmune diseases and, you know, have different symptoms of a heart attack and all of these other things that have been really overlooked. Right. Are you talking with doctors about this issue? I mean, I know setting aside, um, you know, the many, many women who I'm sure are asking you for advice about how to navigate this horrible system better. But like on the flip side, are there doctors who are listening? Are there people who are in charge of like medical journals who actively care about this? Like, did you find good examples of things that can make me hopeful? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, you know, there's doctors and researchers quoted in the book who I think um, doing a lot of good work they have made me hopeful that there's like a lot of interest among younger doctors and medical students around these issues so like I think medical students these days are, are sort of more aware that there are there's sort of a knowledge gap and are sort of pushing for training on on some of these issues which I think is a hopeful sign. Um, And I was also very optimistic about the fact that a number of women that I interviewed who had had really terrible experiences as patients had then been inspired to go to medical school um, because of those experiences. That's a really hopeful sign. And, you know, I've I've also been asked a lot about, like, do you think that... um, female physicians are any better than, mm. than male physicians. And I've sort of emphasized that I, I do think that these are really like systemic and unconscious bias problems. So I don't, I don't think that female doctors are any, you know, there's no guarantee of better treatment. But I do think that women's entering the profession will help in, in that women just are more likely to have conditions that have been really neglected and um, have that sort of just like experiential ability to, to sort of... More likely to have a bestie with fibromyalgia. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> or to have it themselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. I mean, that's my point of entry. I mean, as someone who sort of, I, I identify with the you before your 
autoimmune diagnosis of just like, I have had the extreme privilege of being healthy my whole life, but like, I care about this issue and the way I care about a lot of things because women I'm close, I've watched women I'm very close to struggle with this, you know, and like, and, mm -hmm. and I don't know, I mean, I'm positive that the men in their lives also witness this, but I, I have this kind of palpable sense of the Susan Sontag quote about illness being kind of like, a world that we could all enter at any point, right? That kind of exists alongside yeah. like the world of the well. I'm like, I'm very aware of that as, and I don't know if that has to do with gender necessarily, but it is something that, you know, prior to reading your book though, I mean, and just it, existing in the world with my friendships, I've thought about again mm -hmm. and again, the, the huge lift that is required of women when they are sick. Mm -hmm. Last question, um, and maybe this is not something that's easy on your fingertips, but I am just, there are so many, like I said, eye-popping numbers, like horrifying stats in your book. I'm wondering if you, if you have like lightning round style or like what was something that when you were reporting that you were like, holy mother of everything. I cannot believe this number. Like, <laughs> do you have so a few moments like that or maybe many? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Many. So the fact that it takes 10 to 12 years to get an endometriosis diagnosis is pretty shocking considering that it's like one in 10 women of reproductive age who have the condition. So it's, you know, not a rare <laughs> condition in the slightest. Yeah. It's common. Um, it's common. <laughs> Yeah, very yeah. common. Here's a number. So medical errors in general are like the third leading cause of death in this country after cancer and heart disease. Um, and one of the sort of most surprising but also really helpful things I learned was just about how little feedback doctors get on diagnostic errors. And, um, you know, this has been a really... Uh, issue that's really only been sort of recognized in the last decade and experts have started to say like you know this has been this real blind spot we have like no real systematic research to that's really tracking like how often doctors make the wrong diagnosis or just like miss the diagnosis for years and years and experts really point out that doctors have a very, are, they're overconfident. They're like, like most drivers, like think they're above average drivers. <laughs> like most doctors think they're great diagnosticians. And yet it's not that they're being like, just like individually, like super arrogant. It's just that they don't get that feedback. So they assume that they are correct if, unless they learn otherwise. And because they very often don't hear otherwise, because if they dismiss some woman and then five years later, she's diagnosed with an autoimmune right. disease. And 12 like, doctors later, usually, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And so like, she usually doesn't go back to like this doctor who was like terrible to her and is like, hey, remember me, you know? And so because of that, like one, she has this really long diagnostic delay, which is terrible for her, but also each doctor she sees on that journey just has the impression that she really was that just like stressed out wow. woman. And that I think really was helpful in understanding how this problem has become so self-perpetuating and, you know, sort of despite the best intentions of like individuals, like I think most healthcare providers like want to be doing better, but like one aren't aren't getting the feedback that they're not that they're they're doing poorly a lot of the time 
because there just isn't that that sort of systematic feedback loop. Right. And and like, how can we ask women who have been dismissed by a doctor, right, as like an, with an all in your head type comment, how can we expect those women to then take on the additional burden of years later going back to all the doctors who dismissed them and, and being like, guess what? Right. This was real. Right. And I finally found someone <laughs> to address my real chronic health issue and you didn't do it right. like you know you can't you can't put that burden on on them as well no yeah you <sighs> definitely can't although I do think that I mean for people who want to do that like I do think that that like a letter writing campaign to like all the doctors who dismissed us would be like a, a, a powerful advocacy effort but yeah it, it shouldn't be that way there should be another way oh my god I want there to be a group for women like me who are not in contact with the healthcare system to be able to volunteer to write those letters on behalf of like women who have been dismissed. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, send me a list of doctors and your eventual diagnosis and I will go in on them. <laughs> Letter writing campaign. I, lo- I love <laughs> yeah. it. Um, Maya, thank you so much for this book and for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Wow. Are you raging? I, listen, I'm always raging, <laughs> but um, yeah, the rage meter has just like ticked up slightly more this morning. It's so important that we talk about it and it's so important that we keep talking about it because it's an issue that's been here forever and it's not going away and and people are dying. People are actually dying. Right. And also, you know, just want to directly speak to anyone listening who is having an ongoing issue getting the medical establishment to take your pain or your symptoms or your life seriously we see you and we're sorry about that and this is systemic it is not just you you can find us so many places on the internet callyourgirlfriend.com apple podcast spotify stitcher you name it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast you can subscribe leave us a rating or a review and tell all your friends You can leave us a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. We're on Instagram and Twitter at CallYRGF. Sophie Carter-Khan runs our social accounts. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by the amazing Gina Delvac. See you soon, boo-boo. See you on the internet. See you on the internet.